Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome to the 66 to 87 podcast here on DK Pittsburgh Sports Radio. I am your host, Tom Reed, and we are joined today by our fine Penguin writers, Taylor Haas and Dave Molinari, who have both been driving back from the road from separate places on the East Coast. Taylor coming in from the D.C. Uh, Baltimore area and Dave from his second home in Long Island, I, where I, I'm sure he has a place in the Hamptons by now. He's, he's been there so long. Uh, split weekend for the Penguins. Uh rallying ferociously to uh, win in overtime on Saturday night and then dropping a 2-0 decision uh, Sunday where they just looked lifeless. But what will not be lifeless is PPG Paints Arena on Tuesday, where for the first time uh, the Penguins are set to welcome back fans, I I believe up to maybe uh, up to uh, 2,800 maybe. Uh, but 15% capacity indoors, uh, that the ruling came down on Monday, uh, from the state government and the city was more than happy, uh, to get things going. I want to get your guys' thoughts on this, uh, great timing for a team that's going to host 12 of its next 16 games. Uh, Taylor. Yeah. I mean, that, that's huge. And I, I just think of, um, what this maybe could do for Afghani Malkin's game, because we've talked. We've mentioned before on here that, you know, that's something that might be affecting him, not having that energy to to play off of. Um, when he spoke a couple of weeks ago, he was he, he brought that up like unprompted. He wasn't asked about the fans, but he said, you know, it's 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 hard playing without the fans. So um, I'm just thinking, you know, what what could this do for Afghani Malkin's game, getting those uh, home fans back for this long stretch? Dave, this team has even when there was nobody in the building. Had uh, we talked about this uh, a few weeks ago, they've been pretty good at home. I think seven and one. Uh, it was the, what what boost can they receive from um, getting folks back in the building? Well, it, it'll be interesting to see exactly what the crowd's like. I know I, the Rangers last week uh, had fans in the building for the first time. I believe they had around two thousand, and uh, one of the players was quoted as saying it sounded like twenty thousand. So you have to. Uh, figure there's some pent up energy and enthusiasm among the fans, but I, you know, I think it's entirely possible that both teams home and away, not necessarily just in Pittsburgh uh, will benefit from having fans in the buildings, you know, at least for a few weeks uh, just because it will be such a change. You know, it's, it's been essentially a year since any of these guys, uh, played before a you know a significant audience yeah. um and yeah. I, I i think that uh you know even if you're getting booed <laughs> you know, as, as the flyers probably can expect to be uh you know over the next three games at the ppg paints arena that you know it might uh give you a little bit of adrenaline give you a little extra hop yeah i i, I it's very interesting i, I think I was looking it up March 8th is the last time the Penguins played a home game where there were fans in the building. I think they lost to Carolina that night. And of course, uh, nobody could have at that point thought that it would be this long. I think maybe at the time in talking with people in recent weeks, they knew something might be coming when the NHL went out. They, they, they talked about having a pause, but I don't think a lot of people thought we'd be a year later, uh, on March 2nd and just finally getting fans back in the buildings for you two. I want to ask you guys, you guys have, uh, and one of the great things about DK Pittsburgh sports, uh, we're at, we're everywhere. We are not watching these, these games from TV. Uh, our writers have been out, uh, you two and DK have been, at least one of you guys have been at the games. Give our listeners 
a sense of what it's like in a building with no fans. Taylor? Yeah. So at, at PPG, it's they've done a pretty good job at pumping in like fake crowd noise. Like after a while, I think it was jarring at first, not having like the actual fans there, but uh, they've done a pretty okay job at, you know, pumping in the crowd noise and, you know, they mix in like chants and, you know, turning up when they cheer. So in at PPG, you don't really hear a whole lot of what happens on the ice. Um, but I mean, in, in other buildings, like I was just in DC, we talked about on the last episode, um, they have us pretty close and they're not pumping in anything. And you can hear every word they say on the ice, um, which is cool. I mean, for us, probably not ideal for the for the players because, um, you know, if they're talking to each other, the other team can hear it a lot more clearly than, than they would otherwise. Um, I don't know. That's uh, I think that's one of the things I'm going to miss, though, uh, once things do go back to normal is uh, – being able to hear all the conversations or Tom Wilson running his mouth like he was in D.C. from the penalty, penalty box. <laughs> Dave, I went to a couple of the uh, Steelers uh, games late in the season when the fans were no longer allowed in the building, and it felt like an uh, an exhibition game. And one of the games were a playoff game. There was just there was nothing. I, I, I just your experience. You, you know, you've you've obviously been covering this team for a long time, and this is certainly a first for you. What has this been like for you? Uh, I mean, you know, it, the, the whole experience for the last year has been pretty bizarre. You know, the way everything about it, uh, where we sit at games, uh, you know, how we conduct interviews. You know, there, there's nothing normal about uh, the way business has been conducted Lately, and you know, going to games uh, where there are no fans is is just uh, another aspect of the weirdness. And you know, the, the crowd noise probably you know helps the players somewhat because I don't know how much time they spend actually looking at fans, and if they just have that you know noise in the background, it, it, there's you know probably uh, gives a sense of normalcy to what's going on. Although I have to say that at Nassau Coliseum, um, having covered four games there in February, um, they crank up the canned noise awfully loud there, like to to an unnatural level, uh, to the point where it, it's actually kind of a distraction. Uh, I can't tell you whether the players felt that way or not, but uh, it you know it was uh, it it was pretty clearly not. Uh, not a, a, at a normal, you know, crowd buzz level. Yeah, it's uh, – and, Taylor, I think you're right. I, I mean, with Malkin, what he said, and, and we've mentioned this before, I think different athletes do respond to the outside stimulus or stimuli uh, different. I, I think they're, they're, there's, there's teams that have, have not played as well at home. Uh, I'm a I'm a huge soccer fan, a Liverpool fan. They were unbeatable for like three years at home. They've lost four in a row at home. Uh, they've just you lose that you lose that uh, teams. There are teams that just seem to feed off emotion uh, in buildings, and I think it's going to be really interesting. Uh, Dave, you alluded to this uh, a couple of seconds ago. The Rangers first game back, they beat the Bruins like six to two. Uh, you could just tell that, that that they were pumped up to, to finally play in front of people. I think it'll be an interesting interesting scene uh, tonight uh, uh, at home, and and you know those fans, uh, whoever gets in, it's, uh, season ticket holders get the first dibs. They've got to be loving this to finally get a chance to get back and cheer their team. Yeah, well, they've had a, a, just a couple of fans, like uh, healthcare workers in the suites um, since the beginning. Right. And even like those those fans, like you know, like when there's a goal, um, it, it it seems like they're they're making up for the lack of energy from from the you know having everyone there. Um, I mean, yeah, you just see it from them. So yeah, it'll be interesting. I'm just um worried about losing my parking spot. I've been parking right in front of the media entrance on that, <laughs> like on on the street right by the building. Um, yeah, if they're getting in 2,800 people, I might lose that spot. <laughs> I was I, I I did a story last week of, of, with with fans and 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 ask them what it's been like and, and, and just, you know, again, not being able to go to games, but, but the, the people, I guess the, the, what I'm, the point I want to make here is 
uh, fans that will now get to go into games, it's going to be different. You're going to be excited. You're going to get a chance to watch your team play again. But a lot of times these people won't be in their same seats. The people that they've had gone to games with for a long time that are sitting in their sections won't be around. There'll be people four or five rows up. It'll be very – and the ushers will be watching to make sure people are trying to socially distance and, and you know, have their, 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 their faces covered. So I'll be very interested to see how the fans – the fan experience actually is now of course if, if the penguins are winning that's going to that's going to do for a lot of it but uh are you interested dave to see just the, the reaction to the fans we, we we spoke about the players are going to be happy about it but how the fans get into this yeah i mean i think that uh they will probably be very much into it just because uh you know there will be a, a year's pent up uh enthusiasm and energy and, and you know that Going to a hockey game, I think for a lot of people, will be a significant step back toward uh, life as we knew it a year ago. So I think uh, people will be, you know, pretty fired up. Um, it will be interesting to hear if there are any sort of chants, uh, what they sound like when everybody is is chanting through a mask. <laughs> uh, you'd think that will muffle things a bit, but... Uh, no. So, okay, it'll it'll probably still be a little bit different, but it uh, it will be a nice change, you know, on on many levels. And Taylor, we, as we, we we mentioned at the very beginning, this comes at a great time uh, in in a in a very tight race in the East to to have twelve of your next sixteen at home. Yeah, I, that'll be huge. I mean, they have been good at home. Um, there still kind of has been that that home ice advantage. Uh, Marino talked about it. Uh, a couple of weeks ago that, you know, even without that fans, they do still kind of have that home ice advantage just because you're, you're more comfortable at home. You go, go through your normal routine. Um, so, I mean, that'll be big. Plus what they're going to start actually playing Buffalo in New Jersey, which, which should be, be helpful too, for, for their uh, getting points in the standings. Oh, Buffalo's a, Buffalo's a disaster. I'm not sleeping on the, I would not sleep on the devils. I, I the devils to me, they've been, we, we I don't think we ever really discussed this, uh, Bully, but I I think they're a, an improved team uh, than years past. And don't forget, you know, you know we're at the twenty game mark. Uh, Taylor, you and I have discussed this. Dave has kind of been he's kind of held the fence. It's kind of played out how we thought. The the four or five teams that we thought were going to be competing for the four spots are the ones there. I think the one wild card team is New Jersey, and again, they were they missed some time with COVID, so you got to know that they're they're they could make a push too. Uh, we'll see. Uh, stay with us. We'll be back uh, for our second segment of the 66 to 87 podcast. Welcome back to the 66 to 87 podcast. Uh, we'll be joined a little bit later by TSN insider Frank Cervalli to talk about the Penguins and talk about some league issues. Uh, but guys, let's 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 talk a little bit right now about the game yesterday, the or, or I should say Sunday, the, the two nothing loss. And Taylor, that was a game. Uh, well, they've certainly had some 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 problems throughout the season. That was the first time I saw them from start to finish where they just didn't seem to have anything. And they've got four back-to-backs coming up in March. The, the schedule's going to get – the games are going to start coming thick and fast. And uh, you think that was just a one-off, or is that something you worry about as, as they start to go forward here? It's hard to say. I mean, because that was their first back-to-back of the season. Um, it was not the Islanders' first back-to-back uh, series of the season. I think that was their third, maybe their fourth. Um, so I don't know if that, if that plays a factor, but I mean, it, they've all played back to backs before. I don't know if like this season is that much of a difference. Um, but I mean, yeah, that was definitely, uh, concerning. Cause I mean, what the only guy who had at that game was Casey to Smith. Uh, it, that was, uh, yeah, from really like t- top to bottom, not, not good. Dave jump in there. Well, I, I think the obvious explanation here is that all of his teammates really dislike Casey DeSmith because <laughs> based on the way they played, they really wanted to make his life as difficult as possible on Sunday. 
Um, he really is the only thing that, that kept the Islanders' margin uh, of victory from, from becoming embarrassingly high for the Penguins. Uh, he was very, very good. Um, and I, I thought that they got a, a pretty good effort out of Crosby, um, but there weren't a whole lot of guys who were interested in following that example. Um, and it led to, uh, you know, pretty interesting reaction from Mike Sullivan after the game, uh, where he was giving, uh, some very terse responses to, uh, to the questions that, uh, he was getting from reporters. He, uh, obviously was not in a mood to, uh, get into a lengthy discussion of, of what he had just witnessed. That's as Taylor. That's as angry as I've seen him this year. And and terse is a good word. Uh, uh, I, I would like to transcribe that one. Sometimes mm-hmm. you don't like to transcribe post game stuff. That would have taken like three minutes. Uh, have you seen him as angry as he was and justified uh, for that anger yesterday? I mean, definitely not not this season. Um, I mean, he had a couple of answers that were only one word or um, very short. I mean, he was asked, you know, like how. How what what would the score have been if uh you know Casey to Smith wasn't as good as he was and it was like a really awkward like long pause and then he just said Casey was good and then that was like the end of the uh the press conference but I mean he did have a couple of short answers I mean but he was he was justified um didn't get the effort he wanted from the team uh like we said pretty bad from almost top to bottom uh yeah not not surprised to see that kind of reaction from him post game. Dave, there. I mean, in, in the course of every season, and maybe because of this is such a short season, this stuff gets magnified a game like yesterday. But, man, in the course of every season, a team has – if you're playing an 82-game schedule or an 80-game schedule, teams have three or four of these games, don't they, at least during the course of a season? Oh, absolutely. I mean, everybody has a bad day at the office, you know, no matter what line of work you're in, whether, you know, you're – shoe salesman or an accountant or a left winger. Um, You know, not everybody is on every day. Um, And yeah, if you only have uh, three or four games like that over the course of 82, that really isn't bad. Um, But that doesn't make it uh, any easier for the, uh, the department head, or in this case, the head coach, um, to accept when you get a, uh, you know, a, a subpar uh, performance from the employees. And that certainly was uh, subpar on Sunday in just about every regard. Yeah. Uh, one regard uh, in which it was subpar and, and unfortunately for, for Mike Sullivan and the fans that it's been subpar for a long time this season has been the special teams. And let's break down both units. Uh, we've we've talked on this show about the uh, the power play, but let's let's get into this 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 penalty kill. I mean, goals in fifteen of the twenty games. I think Dave, you had a stat in your story. What, what was it? Eleven of the last fourteen that 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 they've 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 they've, they've surrendered power play goals. What is going on? with that PK is, is it, is it, can it be, is it one explanation? Are there, are there multiple things have, have the, have the circumstances and the reasons for it changed Taylor as the season's gone on? It's really tough to say because they just played, you know, the series against the Capitals. Um, and what it was that, it was that first game. I mean, the Capitals went into that series with the number one power play in the league. Um, the Penguins PK has been hovering around, you know, the bottom of the league, uh, pretty much the whole season. And that first game against the Capitals, um, the Caps had two up power play opportunities, both in the first period, and they didn't get a single shot off um, on either opportunity. And I, I did the drive to the net, like breaking it down. And the reason they didn't get any, any shots off is because they never uh, got a chance to set up, um, like at all. Um, Sullen, he attributed it to like cooperative pressure, uh, you know, the neutral zone. They like the capital, they, they never had a chance, you know, Ovechkin very dangerous from the left circle uh you don't have to worry about a shot there if he don't if you don't let him get there in the first place so um I mean that was really impressive to see and then they just go and you know back to what they were doing before and you know how they were bad again against the Islanders two power play goals that uh, they allowed but um 
I mean, it's hard to say. Sullivan was asked, you know, after, you know, which is the real, uh, you know, PK, you know, and he said, we are what we are. So I don't know what that means either. Um, but yeah, it's hard to say what the issue is when they can be so good, like they were against the Caps and then go right back to, you know, how they played against the Islanders. Dave, I wonder part of it, you know, I, I, you guys have been watching these guys for years. I, I watch them a lot more now. I love uh, Bluger and Tanev together. I think they're, they're a really good pairing, but I wonder, you know, early in the season, what did we talk about? We talked about the goaltending struggling below the bar. What else have we talked about a lot is the, the, the defensemen, the injuries to defensemen, guys playing different partners and maybe, you know, different penalty kill partners um, uh, a new system, you know, uh, the uh, new coaching, a new coach running it. Is it? Do you think it's just a multiple things, and, and maybe it starts to shake out as the, the some of the defensemen come back, or is is you know how do you see this getting remedied? Well, I, I'm not sure that we have to break down the penalty killing because it's done a pretty good job of breaking down on its own. Um, <laughs> But no, I, I think all of those things uh, that that you mentioned probably were factors and legitimate ones early in the season. But really, none of them, you know, should be reflected in, in the penalty kill at this point. You know, they they've had twenty games of uh, operating in uh, Mike Vellucci's penalty killing system. Uh, the defensemen are getting pretty healthy. I mean, you're always going to have some injuries to deal with. Uh, there, uh, and you know, they have personnel that you know really should be much better uh, than it has been. Uh, you know, in terms of the unit to, to this point of the season, uh, special teams going into the season, I, I think a lot of us believe that they would be a real strength for this team. But uh, not only the penalty kill, but the power play has just terribly underachieved uh, through the first 20 games. And, you know, if that doesn't change, it's really hard to picture this team uh, sneaking into a playoff spot. Yeah, I was good. I was just going to say that. Taylor, I'll let you jump in here a second. To me, especially a, a, a PK, if, you're, if you can't kill penalties – late in the season and you are in a race and clearly this, I mean, the, 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 the pens are a little bit on the outside looking in right now, but that's such a tight race. Those first five or six teams, but uh, just a, a, a bad PK could be the deciding thing that if you get in or get out. So uh, Taylor, jump in on that. Yeah. Well, to the, the earlier point, um, I mean, Teddy Bluger did say it was like maybe two, three weeks ago by now that um, part of it is that, you know, new, um, you know, assistant coach running the PK new system. And, you know, so much of the PK has to be intuitive. Um, and that's hard to do when you're in the process of learning a new system. Um, you know, they can't really read off of each other until they have the system down. Um, but I mean, by this point, I don't know if you can use that as like an excuse because I mean, we are what two months into the season now. Um, so I don't, I don't know how much of it is still uh, on learning a new system. Yeah. And in, 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 in fairness on, on Sunday, uh, I mean, uh, just the first goal was just as, as, as Dave wrote, if, 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 if Casey DeSmith had got over there, there may have been a hole in him. That puck was shot so hard. And the second one, Rust gets there, deflects it. And it's just, it takes it's like a it's like an, it becomes an off speed pitch, which kind of goes between the wickets. I think of Casey DeSmith. You know, he might have been better off not even touching the puck. Uh, Smith might have had a better chance to save it. So I'm sure there's a level of frustration. I know there's got to be a level of frustration with this power play. I mean, it is. We talk about this power play so much, and it just continues, and it continues to struggle. It, it continues to let them down in games. Uh, what more can we, Dave? Dave, jump in there on this and and tell me, give fans a reason to think that things are going to get better with this unit. Do I really have to? <laughs> We're trying. Uh, I mean, listeners, Dave. Considering you know how long you know th this power play has 
been guilty of overpassing. I mean, that that's not something that just developed this year. I mean, it's been a chronic issue with this this power play where they simply don't shoot enough. Uh, you know, it's you know it, it gets redundant, but there there is really no great secret to succeeding on a power play. You get you get pucks and bodies to the net. It's you know it it's not complicated, and they you know. They they tend to you know just move the puck around the perimeter and you know maybe look for a nice backdoor pass or uh, something like that. But w- when they have success on the power play, it, it's when they shoot. And you you'd think it would be in their own uh, interest of self preservation to score on the power play apparently uh, or occasionally <clears throat> because if you don't. Opponents are going to have no reservations ab- about taking physical liberties with you. If right. yeah. uh, the, the Penguins don't have an enforcer type who's going to physically intimidate opponents, put the fear of God into them if they uh, go after a Crosby or a Gensel or something like that. And so if you're not going to deter that, that kind of thing by hurting the opponent uh, with, with a power play goal, you know, what incentive do they have to uh, not pummel you at every opportunity? Uh, Taylor Latang did get one here recently. Uh, I think that it was, and uh, I mean, just a point shot, right? Just fire the fire the puck from the point. What is what is so hard to get through to those guys that occasionally you just you, it, it's okay to go uh, low to high and, and, and shoot the puck and get get a little bit of traffic. A lot, a lot of teams do that. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it these kind of WebEx calls that we do kind of feels like Groundhog Day by now that, you know, what's not clicking with the power play? And they all say, you know, you know, you have, you know, that many skilled guys that they are looking for the pretty play. So it's not anything that they're not aware of. So I don't like it's they don't need to be told um, that they're not shooting enough. But I mean, it like we said, it's been this has been an issue for a while now. So I don't know what the answer is. Uh, put the P gay guys out there on, on the power play because. What uh, I mean? How many shorthanded goals do they have? Uh, They've got a couple, I think. Yeah, right? I mean, but Tanev just got one in Washington. Yeah. Um, just if they're gonna shoot, put the guys that'll shoot out there. Well, yeah, I mean, it, on, on some levels, it sounds crazy to sit some of the guys who are on the the first power play because of the exceptional skill levels they have, but skill levels don't automatically translate to goals and. If it doesn't matter how talented you are, if if you're not going to shoot the puck, you know that talent doesn't do you any good. Um, you know, I would if if I were overseeing this power play, I would certainly consider, you know, shaking up that especially that top unit. I think the the second unit tends to play you know, uh, more in, in the style that, that you expect of a, of a power play. But, you know, I would consider putting uh, maybe a Kapanen on, on the first unit. Uh, whatever failings he has, and Mike Sullivan seems to zero in on all of them, uh, <laughs> he uh, certainly is willing to, to shoot the puck. And uh, I think that would be a, a welcome change and a pretty good remedy for the primary uh, issue that, that ails this power play. Well, and, and people talk about the lack of like a net front presence too, but I mean, a point Sullivan made it like, you know, like two, two, three weeks ago by now is that, you know, if, if they're not shooting the puck, why would anyone go to the front of the net and make that choice to get, you know, like kidney punched when like, you're not going to get like a, a redirect or, you know, like a rebound goal. Cause, cause no one's putting the puck there. He said, you know, if we start shooting the puck more, maybe guys will be more inclined to go to the front of the net and, getting beat up like that but uh i mean and you do see that on the second unit um i don't know i'm wilkesbury's power play is great like just bring them up put, put josh curry on the on the top unit in pittsburgh it can't hurt well the, 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 and of course the usually with with most power plays especially one with as 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 talent laden as the first unit they usually play what a minute and 30 seconds and that second unit gets on for 
scraps at the, at the end. Um, so it's that it's hard. You'd almost have to, as Dave maybe mentioned, is just in, you know, if you want to shake something up, start the second unit once or twice in here and, and see what happens. Uh, last thing in this segment, uh, Evgeny Malkin talked after the game, Dave, yesterday. Uh, I think he's, he thought he's going to get it going here. It's, he feels it's going to, it might be coming at some point. Uh, what did he have to say? And, and, and do you take anything from it? That Are you seeing anything that he's really going to pick up his game? Because he's had a couple of goals here and there. Uh, but he, he did not sound real enthused yesterday when 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 he, he spoke well i i would have been concerned if any of them had sounded enthused after yeah. after the performance that that they again with the exception of casey de smith turned in that day um i think malkin has been better you know in the in the past handful of games um but you know, the bar he's cleared by doing that was set awfully low by his uh, play before that. Um, he can get better and he has to get better. Um, they simply can't afford to have him, you know, make just the occasional contribution um, if, if they're going to have any sort of successful season. Uh, he's he's just too important. Taylor, I think these tie in with the, these two topics tie in to get with each other. We're just talking about the power play. He's obviously a big part of of, of that first unit, and it's it's failings. What have you seen of his game uh, on the P, on the power play? Yeah, I mean it's the same stuff that's sailing the rest of the unit overpassing not shooting when they have the puck but um i mean just in general with mulk and i don't i don't know if it's the effort uh some games that seems like you're just coasting around but then you know he'll turn it on um you know a couple of recent overtime games he's had really good uh he, he just looked really good uh you know when it matters but uh i mean I, yeah i don't know like we talked about in the first segment i don't know if uh <laughs> the crowd the crowd could help him and if it's um, you know, he, he, he needs that energy, um, to shoot the puck, but, uh, I mean, I guess we'll see. I mean, you guys, I mean, I kind of parachute in over the years and I just, when he is in that right circle to me, if I'm an opponent, it throws the fear of God into me. Cause he can, he can whip that puck from the right side. I mean, I've seen, I've seen him so score so many goals and I'm, it's, and it's all what we're talking about. Why don't you try that? Just set him up and let him crank it. Have people asked him why he's why he specifically is not shooting from from over there where he's so good at it? I honestly not not that I know of. You know, he it's not like we have access to speak with him on right, any of sort of regular basis. Um, but he, you know, doesn't seem to be uh, more inclined to get the puck toward the net than anybody else on that number one unit. So. Um, I don't know. I just, I, I, I wish I uh, had an answer for this because, I, as I think I've mentioned previously, I'd, I'd love to be able to sell it to the Penguins for for big money because, uh, you know, a uh, a productive power play uh, versus a non-productive one could be the difference between uh, playoff revenue and not playoff revenue for this team. Yeah, and I, that's you're absolutely 100 percent because if they don't get this, and again, I think it's it's as critical as anything is is getting the is, is getting the the penalty killing straightened out. Uh, they may be on the outside looking in, but when we come back on our final segment of the 66 to 87 podcast, we will be joined by TSN insider Frank Cervalli. Stay with us. podcast on DK Sports Radio and it is our pleasure now to be joined by TSN insider Frank Cervalli. Frank thanks for uh, taking some time today. Yeah glad to connect with you guys. Uh, great Frank um, obviously the, the the Penguins have made some news here uh, they've been a, they, they've been certainly in the news 
this season with Jim Rutherford stepping down, uh, uh, Ron Hextall and Brian Burke joining the 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 the, uh, the management team and the the team actually playing a little bit better as of recently. What have your impressions of of this team been uh, through twenty games? You know, um, just starting with opening night and seeing them kind of before the season started, my my expectations were that this would be a team. I saw them as a firm playoff team. And in fact, I, I had thought that the changes that Jim had made over the summer or the off season had positioned this team perhaps to have the best defense core that they had in a number of years. And there's been some shakiness to it. There's obviously been some injuries as well. And the goaltending hasn't held up its end of the bargain, which has made life really difficult on everyone. We all know um, how much a talented goalie and, and one that's playing well really covers up a team's flaws. But um, I think they're getting to the point now where they found themselves a bit and they're sort of right in that mix. Like I saw them in the three, four spot in terms of the East and I, they're going to have to scratch and claw to get in there. But I, I think they're right in that mix. Yeah. Frank, uh, the, the Flyers are a team that, that is obviously on the rise. Uh, you see them on a pretty regular basis living in Philadelphia. What's allowed them to have uh, the success that they've had so far this year? And is there anything about that team that people who just follow them on a, on a casual basis might not be aware of? Not sure that there's anything that's um... – there's no like secret ingredient or special sauce with that team. They compete. Um, they compete like bastards. And so that's part of it. And the other part is they're just deep. Um, they've got, you know, this wave after wave attack that kind of comes at you. And I think that's allowed them to be really successful. And I think the other part is they've gotten some contributions um, that may be a little bit of a surprise, like, um, like James Van Riemsdyk being well north of a point per game player and scoring 10 goals to this point. I don't think anyone saw that coming. Uh, but Joel Farabee is a guy that's taken a big step for them. He's been near a point per game player and they've got, you know, really three to four strong lines that there's not a huge drop off. So you, it's allowed their other kind of, if you want to call them aging stars, Giroux at 33 and Voracek at 31 to, take a back seat in a way. And I think that's really, you know, helped them out that they're not really being relied on to do the heavy lifting. You were in uh, Philly for, for the beginning, you're on the Flyers beat for the beginning of Hextall's tenure there. Just what were your impressions of, of what he did for the Flyers, his strengths and uh, what maybe his mistakes were as Flyers GM? Well, I, I don't think anyone ever, really question Ron Hextall's ability to run a hockey team and, and draft well and develop well. And so I think there was always a lot of, um, you know, confusion as to his exit at, you know, it was reported that he didn't see eye to eye in terms of philosophy, that there was a philosophical difference between Ron Hextall and Flyers upper management. And, and I don't know that that was necessarily the case either. Um, I think really it was the question mark was always in Ron Hextall's ability to to manage up one and and two to um, handle the other the the off ice part of it. And I don't know that he ever managed people well in his position. And so I think that really ended up being his undoing in Philadelphia. And now that he's in Pittsburgh and has the opportunity to focus more on the hockey part of it, and you have Brian Burke coming in with him to manage sort of the rest of it and, and be at times the, the public facing part of it, in addition to being the public facing part of it, but also that buffer between Matt, hockey ops management and then ownership and David Morehouse that I think it's going to work out really well. Now, I think the big question mark that everyone's really, you know, not concerned, but is intrigued to see is how Ron Hextall and Brian Burke grow to work with each other. These are two really strong personalities. Um, 
two people that, you know, have beliefs and, um, you know, can be, I don't know if abrasive is the right word, but headstrong, they're confident people. And, you know, those two guys sometimes are, um, like pit bulls on a meat wagon, it's hard to shake them off. And so, um, I think that's really what I'm int interested in, intrigued to see. And, and I think Ron Hextall has had a lot of time to sit and digest where things went off the rails in Philly. And I think you'll see him handle a number of things differently than he might have now that he's gotten a second crack. Yeah. What do you think, I mean, Burke's influence will be, I mean, cause he is very old school. Uh, do you think, you know, he's, he's changed his, his views or, or his ways since he was a general manager before? I, I don't know. Uh, it's hard to say. And I, I always, um, I, I struggle at times putting people in boxes in terms of this guy's old school, this guy's new school. I think, you know, he, Brian Burke's been around a long time and has seen a lot of different things. And, you know, I, I would say that his chance to, you know, take a break from that and, and go into media, uh, working at Sportsnet and Hockey Night that, you know, maybe opened his eyes to some different things and a different way to, to watch the game, maybe. But at the end of the day, um, it's still hockey and it's still, you know, what he knows and, and what he's seen and been through. So, um, you know, I, I'm... I think it's a fascinating pairing, to be honest. Um, those two guys working together, like I said. Um, and, and I think he's a guy that is open to new ideas and is open to the conversation. And and I think that's what I'd love to be a fly on the wall for, is, is that conversation that goes back and forth between the two. Uh, Frank, uh, the first night I think the new, this news broke, or the first time you guys were on TV, I remember you specifically mentioning Chris Pryor. Mm -hmm. uh, walk, keep an eye out for this. Uh, this could happen. And, and as it turns out, that's why you're an insider. Uh, he ends up uh, c coming along to Pittsburgh. What will he add? How will he help uh, 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 Hextall as, as they kind of make this transition here in the next year or two uh, in the draft and trying to kind of rebuild after, you know, these, the, the, these great players that they have here at the end of their career move on? Well, I think he does a number of things. One is, is familiarity. He's a, a, a welcoming face for Ron Hextall. And when I called him in a tweet the other day, Hextall's right-hand man, I almost feel like I was underselling it in a way. He's more like his right arm. And if you watched how close those two were in Philly and how well they worked together, um, you know, it was zero shock at all. Like I knew it was only a matter of time for those two to be working together again. I think they always wanted, you know, if one got an opportunity somewhere that the idea was to bring the other along. And so the other part is in addition to the, the, the familiar face, the other part that you're seeing is, or you will see is the increased success and hit rate on draft picks. And I think, you know, that's the one thing that the Flyers really struggled with for a while. It wasn't hitting on draft picks. It was, they were always kind of in that same mode that, um, that the Penguins were in. Like, if you look back to their last, you know, number of years uh, before Ron Hextall in the Paul Holmgren era, they were constantly trading picks, first round picks uh, to, to be competitive. And so at a certain point, they smartened up, of course. And the other part is they started hitting on players further down in the draft. You know, you see an Oscar Lindblom, for instance, a fifth round pick. You see uh, Nick Albay-Cubell, a second round pick. A Mark Friedman, who, the, the uh, of course, the Penguins just grabbed on waivers, a third round pick. Um, those guys make a huge difference. And you go draft by draft and you see um, Ivan Provorov and Travis Konechny both picks in the first round, nailed that. And, and you go down the list and you, you start to see some of these other players that are making big dents in the Flyers lineup. When you have limited assets like the Penguins do and you're, you're not planning on moving draft picks in order to be successful and be competitive in the future, you've got to hit. And so the idea will be to accumulate as many of those as they can, which I believe Ron Hextall will try and do. 
And the other part is to drill down on them. And that's what Chris Pryor does. He, you know, every, every draft board has its holes and its misses, but he did a lot better than most from those drafts. All right. Uh, obviously what you're ramping up for uh, the, the trade deadline here, about another month to go. I'm uh, not going to ask you right now who you're expecting to get moved and where they're getting moved, but how does COVID change this? Uh, you know, we just saw a couple weeks ago uh, with the trade with Columbus and Winnipeg. Uh, it took uh, Pierre-Luc Dubois like two weeks to play a game uh, just because of having to quarantine. How, what are some of the factors here as we're going through this battle with this virus that may impact uh, the way that, 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 that we see the trade deadline this year? You know, I, I don't, know that it's going to have a huge impact necessarily on the, you know, the quarantine part of it. Like at the end of the day, if the quarantine was two months for Pierre-Luc Dubois going to Winnipeg, they would have done it because they believe they were getting a, a top-notch impact player that's going to, you know, be part of that team for the next four years, if not longer. That's just how long he's under team control. And so you know, if you're talking about real impact players, I think teams are going to find a way to do whatever is necessary, move heaven and earth in order to bring them in. If they really are significantly increasing their either their playoff chances or more likely their Stanley Cup chances, then you're still going to see those types of uh, moves happen. Now, I, I think where you're going to see a little bit of a drop off is in some of the fringe moves or the depth transactions. And that's, you know, you look at a Jake Bertanen trade that was supposed to have materialized over the weekend between Vancouver and Anaheim. I believe Dan Heinen was the other piece going uh, or scheduled to go from Anaheim to Vancouver. And I, I think those two teams got cold feet because they're saying, well, with the two week quarantine and we're not, you know, how much of an impact are these players really going to have on our team? And I think at the end of the day, the decision was not much. Let's hold off. Yeah. And so I think that's a big, you know, example of, of why you could see, um, you know, some of those trades, you know, we're not going to see as many of those in the COVID era, but if you're talking real impact players and there just seems to be less of them on the market this year, I don't know if it's because of COVID or, or what, but uh, it just seems to be a thin trade bait class as we posted our first trade bait board of the season on TSN.ca earlier today. And, you know, it, it's going to be interesting to watch it all unfold over the next six weeks. Do you think we might see deals happen earlier than they normally would uh, leading up to the trade deadline, less like actually deadline day deals because of that quarantine period? Maybe. But again, it's it's one of those things, you know, before you would get a player for 18 to 20 games at the deadline. So it's a compounded thing. It's not just the quarantine. It's also the shortened season. Whereas now you're looking at somewhere of a 10 to 12 game impact in the regular season plus playoffs. And if you're dealing with a quarantine, you're looking at maybe six games. So could it speed it up? It could. But like I said, you know, teams are going to try and do anything they can to get an impact player, regardless of whatever the time frame is, if a player like that is available. Frank, you, you mentioned the impact that uh, the quarantine could have on the trade deadline. What kind of impact does the quarantine have on, say, a TV guy who lives in Philadelphia but works for a network that's based in Canada? Dave, it's been so bizarre. I, I'm, you know, I know you've traveled for a long time, and I know all of you have traveled a bit, but I haven't been on a plane, you know, in approaching one calendar year. March 8th was my last flight. I came home from the NHL's GM's meetings in Boca Raton, Florida, and I haven't gotten on a plane since. And um, it's been the strangest thing, um, you know, not traveling, but also not, I, I can't, like, I. it's hard for me to get excited about the idea of traveling and, and not because of the virus. That's, of course, always in the back of your mind. It's just when you go to the rink now, like I'm, I like to press the flesh. I like to talk to people and it's the strangest thing, you know, not being able to be in the dressing room and to, to talk to people directly relying on zoom. And so it's hard to really work up uh, an explanation as to why you should be. And so that's sort of been difficult uh, for me to grapple with, but yeah, I, it's hard to not be, to know that in six weeks when we have trade center, 
and we'd have this sort of 10 or 12 hour marathon day of TV that I'm going to be sitting in my basement doing it connected through um, our TV platform. It just, it doesn't, it doesn't feel the same. And I think the whole season hasn't felt the same for a lot of reasons, not me work related, but just not having fans in the building. And I know the Penguins announced today that they're going to have some fans back finally, but you know, it just, it's made it a little bit harder. I, I don't know to get as juiced up for the season. If I'm being honest, is that, do you, do any of you guys feel the same? It's certainly different. Yeah, I agree. Frank, we'll get you out of here on this one. Um, you know, one of the one of the dominating stories of the last week in the NHL was uh, with what happened with Artemi Panarin, and uh, obviously the, the Penguins have a prominent Russian player as well. Uh, how un, how weird is this story, and how unsettling is it uh, to see a, a player, you know, one of the, the league's top players, kind of going through this and kind of uh, the political overtones, uh, which is something I don't think that we have seen since a lot of the, the, the kind of the wall fell and when players first came over, maybe. Uh, but just what's it been like kind of in this story and, and seeing what's happening with Panarin and maybe the fallout with some of the other Russian players? It's been definitely weird and definitely unsettling to think that a player is fearing for his safety and his family's safety. Uh, when something like that pops up. And so that's, um, you know, you feel for him. And I, I, I got to tell you, I was, when the story first broke and, and my bosses at TSN called and, and I was, you know, trying to wrap my head around the whole thing and understand it, I, I didn't, I, I don't remember being faced with a story exactly like that. And I, I've covered a lot of really, you know, different ones. I don't even want to say strange, but the way that it, you know, it, it sort of certainly seems like it um, falls into the political sphere. And, and then like, you're trying to cut through and, and understand a world that you don't, I don't really know anything about. Like I, like you guys, I, I've read about a lot of what's happening in Russia and I stay up on, on current events and I understand the, the distaste for, for Vladimir Putin. And I just, I, the rest of it, I don't know enough about to really write a story on. And so you don't understand what's true and what isn't. Was this a coach, a former coach that's just spouting off? Does he actually have pressure on him uh, from the government to make claims like that? Um, you don't know. And all I know is that if a player is, is feeling that um, upset and scared by it, that it's real. And the fact that he, you know, one of the best players, you know, one of the top 10 players in the game needs to take a leave of absence from one of the NHL's marquee franchises. Well, that that just goes to show you how powerful that pull is. And and that's what's sort of been difficult to digest. And also just knowing that I don't know enough to really dive into it. Yeah. Frank, it was a pleasure to have you. Uh, Frank Cervalli, uh, TSN Insider. I hope everyone reads his work. And he's obviously going to be really busy here in the next weeks as we get down, count down toward deadline. That's it for us today on the 66 to 87 podcast. I'm Tom Reed. Uh, and for Taylor Haas, and Dave Molinari, and Frank Cervalli, we'll talk to you next time.